welcome to another edition of What If with me, Lorraine. And me, Rosie. And well, Rosie, I feel as if we should be curtsying. I know. Applauding, mm-hmm. saluting, doing whatever it is we have to do because we're so delighted to have Dr. Kath Green with us. Of course, one of the team who developed the AstraZeneca vaccine and who has written a best-selling book with Dame Sarah Gilbert and it's called Vaxers. And uh, we both loved it. Kath, it is so good to see you and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's very <laughs> nice to be here. No, it's it's great. and And the book is just because I thought well here's a book it's going to be very very difficult it's going to be wading through all this scientific wonderfulness but it's going to be way above all of our heads but you've written it in such a way it's like a thriller it's like a mystery it's like and it, and it just makes it so accessible to all of us doesn't it mm. Thank you. It's really nice to hear that because that is, of course, what we were aiming for, to make it an accessible science book, not just a science book written for scientists. So I'm glad we managed to achieve that in some way. You absolutely, you absolutely did. And thank you from both of us because we're both double vaccinated, yeah. aren't we? So it's, it's yes, so it's just basically thank you for doing what you do. And before we get on to all of that, though, we just both wanted to find out a wee bit more about you because... Were you from a scientific background growing up? I mean, what? where did all of this this knowledge and this passion and enthusiasm come from? So I was born in a small town called Gravesend in Kent yes, on the Thames yes. Estuary just outside London. Uh, my dad was originally a river man, so a lighterman, so worked on the docks transporting goods as they come in off big ships and then taking them up on smaller ships oh. up the River Thames. And then all the docks closed in the 80s and he was made redundant and retrained as a London taxi driver. So after that, oh. I'm the daughter of a, both a lighterman and a London taxi <laughs> driver. Um, so not a science family. Uh, my mum went to university. She did maths at Essex. Um, And then after me and my sister were born, she worked in a school part time setting up the science labs. So I think my upbringing is always one of curiosity. I think my parents both encouraged myself and my sister to be interested in the world around us. And that probably is where my science angle comes from. I love that curiosity. Mm. I love that. I I really do. Um, I remember going to a, a wonderful lecture and Michael Palin talking about curiosity and he said it's the one thing that you must never lose. Mm. It's the thing that keeps us striving. It keeps us wanting to know why, why, why. When you were a little kid, Rosie, the words that come out of your mouth were always why. Why is that? What's happening? What, <laughs> Sounds very annoying. No, it wasn't. It was brilliant. Okay. I loved that you were interested. Not in, even a little bit annoying? No, it wasn't even a little bit annoying. I mean, sometimes, well, it, the only time it was annoying or frustrating was when I didn't know the answer. Okay. <laughs> but they do that, don't they, kids? Why, why, why? And my, my daughter's 10 now, and she does sometimes do the why, why, why in order to be annoying. So <laughs> just she has this argument that you can always answer why to every question, and therefore it goes on forever, the conversation. But there is something in that, isn't there? There is something in that naivety of trying to understand understand why the world is like it is and of course with science then whether you can learn enough about the world to influence it in in some way and and to make the world a better place I think is all tied in together with that curiosity. So Mm. how did you get from being like there you are and you go to university and you work really hard what was it that you were studying and what did you go on to study after university that meant that you were thank goodness the right person in the right place at the right time with the right team? 
So as with many things, I think a career in science isn't always a particularly linear or necessarily planned route through. So I think if when I was starting out at university to imagine I would get to here probably wasn't wasn't the end point. So at school, I was at a grammar school in Kent. Um, I, we, I was back in the day before even the 11 plus. So we did 30. We, we transferred to grammar school at 13. And then I did A-levels in chemistry and maths and biology and physics. Um, and went to Cambridge to do an undergraduate. And at Cambridge, the science degree is is a mixed science degree. So you go to do a thing called natural sciences, and then you can choose modules there within any aspects of science. And I originally thought I'd be a chemist, probably because chemistry was kind of the only thing I saw around me as being a job that you could do, because chemistry felt to me like a thing that was an actual job. I didn't Mm. really know you could do biology as a career. And then (laughs) when at university, I discovered this thing called biochemistry, which for me was really fascinating, the idea that life is just chemistry at the at the fundamentals we are just chemical reactions in a bag of water yeah and that for me was a revelation and then I did my PhD in London in genetics and that again was a transformative moment for me because it was in the mid 90s at the time when we were starting to uncover the human genome we could sequence the genomes of organisms that we could never do before and that changed the way we could look at genetics and turn that into a a chemical and biochemical um, understanding of how how genomes work and so then I moved to Paris when I finished my PhD and did three years in Paris studying um, human genetics and the influences of ultraviolet sunlight damage on our on our genomes and how that can lead to skin cancer and that then took me to a a job in the University of Sussex in Brighton studying the same thing the influence of how when we go out in the sun sunlight can damage our genetic material and how that can lead to skin cancer and how we might might learn from predisposition syndromes to understand how how um, cancer develops and can be prevented then back to Cambridge to set up my own lab again looking at that trying to understand human genetics and then to Oxford in 2012 um, still looking at human chromosomes human genetics and how genetic information is copied and then it while in Oxford and I still have that research team so I do the vaccine work half time and I run a research team half time in human genetics and the study of, of genome alterations but many of the things about science are that that the the skills that you learn in one part of science is quite directly applicable to other parts. And so my team in the Wellcome Centre for Human Genetics use a lot of the tools and a lot of the expertise that then I need in order to run the team that does the vaccine development. So we culture human cells in dishes and in flasks and we manipulate them and we use them to to grow things. So that's then directly relevant to the vaccine development team, which I have been running since 2018. Wow. 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 Please tell me when you were in Paris, it wasn't all just work. (laughs) Did you actually get out to play? At any point. Yeah, no, so that's the joy of, and again, one of the joys of a scientific career. And I, I try to to always say to people that science is very, you have to be very dedicated because you're working by yourself and you're having to prove yourself all the time in the same way as a maybe a designer is only as good as his last dress, a scientist is only as good as their last piece of research. But yeah, you are generally working with young teams in interesting parts of the world quite often and with other scientists who come from all different parts of the world. So you do find yourself surrounded by a community of really interesting and interested individuals. And of course, when you're in your in your 
late 20s living in Paris surrounded by other people in their 20s there is some fun to be had it's, it's good sure. that's okay. what we like yeah yes we I'm very <laughs> very glad about that now a lot of people were saying when all of this started that we didn't know what was going to happen but you did see it coming you know people said oh you, oh we didn't see that coming but you did you knew i mean we had had these warnings before i guess either you know, the powers that be chose to ignore them or people just thought, oh, well, we'll put our head in the sand and hopefully it'll go away. I think that's right. So I'm not an infectious disease specialist, but no. people who do work on transmission and generation of infectious diseases certainly had been saying that we need to be prepared for a pandemic. So there was quite a lot of work that had been done modelling what we should do, because influenza is something that had always been in people's minds. And we see outbreaks of influenza and, and new potential pandemics of influenza. So quite a lot of modelling was done on how to deal with influenza pandemics. But then people like Sarah, Sarah Gil but who I wrote the book with. So she's been working on outbreak pathogens for a long time. So these are um, diseases that perhaps get a bit less attention here in the West because they tend to happen in lower middle income countries, perhaps on other sides of the world. So diseases that mostly transmit in animals and then occasionally cross over into humans, cause an outbreak and then perhaps are contained normally by um like quarantine measures. Sure. So mm. something like Ebola, there'll be an Ebola outbreak yeah. and then it's contained. And then there are other diseases that have similar outbreaks to that. And so Sarah's been working quite often. Quite often there are no vaccines against those because they're an outbreak. They don't actually infect that many people before the, the, the outbreak is contained. And therefore there's not much profit to be made in generating vaccines for those. So they tend not to be very high up pharmaceutical companies' endeavours, for example. So there has been a global community over the last 20 years trying to figure out how we can, A, find the resources and then do the science to make vaccines against those kind of diseases. And so what we had at Oxford was people with experience in making vaccines against outbreak pathogens, and therefore we had the technology ready for us when this pandemic situation came along. And right back in January 2020, when we first started the project, I think Sarah and I were first thinking this might well be one of those outbreaks. It might occur in Wuhan and then not get further than the city borders, for example, because of the containment strategies that were put in place. But obviously it turns out to be highly infectious and we know where that ends up. We do. Hmm. You were in Singapore for the first time. I was. And I, I mean, the first time I heard about it was, I think it was December 2019. Mm, yeah, um, right at the end. And then, yeah. And then I remember going away in January because it was Chinese New Year and people weren't coming. They weren't traveling as much. Yeah. Um, and I remember going to the Philippines. I, had, I think I had four days off work because you get... I used to get two days off work for Chinese New Year. It was great. And um, I remember going there and on the plane, everyone was wearing a mask. And I was like, oh, this is kind of like normal. It felt very normal because that's what it was like there. Mm. And then I remember being on the beach and me and my friends were on our phones. And we were like, this is going to be huge. Yeah. And then we came back to Singapore and then they had the temperature scanners when you would mm. come in. But that was kind of it. And then I remember going away in March again to Thailand and when we came back we came back went on Friday came back Sunday and they said if we had got the flight earlier we would have had to quarantine for two weeks in Singapore right. but we didn't and then I remember because we just missed it I went to work on Monday and I had to fill in my temperature three times a day into a spreadsheet and basically only go from my office to my house and that was it wow. and then I came home I had two weeks proper lockdown after yeah. that in my tiny little flat in Singapore and then 
came home on a plane with like seven people. That was really weird. So I came back just as the UK was coming out of lockdown. Yeah. Ish. It was when you could go golfing. So dad was very happy. <laughs> so I, I missed it all. I missed like the oh, proper one. The in lockdown, the it yeah. was it was so scary, actually. And that's why, you know, the work that you did, Kath, and the work that you and all of the team did was, was so, so important. But it must have been, I mean, you, you know, you talk about pressure. There must be such a lot of pressure on you that I don't think at the time we understood because we didn't know what was happening. We didn't know, you know, what was going on. I mean, what was it? I know, I know you're all scientists. I know you're all very logical and all of that. But, you know, you're human beings as well. And the pressure must have been enormous. It was it was a really strange time because I look back at it now and yeah it was very intense because we were working very hard up against some very tight deadlines every every week that went on the the information about the pandemic got worse the numbers of people infected got worse even back in February it was going up and up and up every day and the cases in the UK were going up and it was getting worse every day so that pressure was very intense but when I look back at it now I guess when you're in a when you're in a zone, sometimes you also don't you you can get through on a combination of adrenaline and cortisol and and yeah. mm. but there also wasn't anything else to do. Yeah. So if you think about your life now, and you'll be the same, right? And you have lots of lots of deadlines for lots of different projects and lots of different competing um, things that you have to get done, and juggling those sometimes is some of the most stressful things I think about our jobs, yeah. And so although we had a lot to do and the time pressure was enormous, there was nothing else to do at all. We were completely focused on one singular goal. And so in some ways, it was quite easy to manage that stress because everything that we did achieve was one more step towards that. And there was no competing interest. There was no social life. There was no pressure to mm. have a, you know, a dressing up thing ready for school the next day because, you know, the kids come home from school, don't they? And they say, oh, mummy, I'm supposed to go to work school tomorrow dressed as a hedgehog. And I haven't got anything brown. <laughs> there was none of that. There was no shopping. There was no going out with friends. Nobody had a hangover any day. We just got on with the one thing that we had to do. And so looking back at it, it's a very strangely intense, but also quite linear part of my life. There's an interesting piece in the book that I really liked, Kath. And it's when you say, we were never searching for, hunting for, or, my personal bugbear, finding a vaccine. Um, all year the papers talked about finding a vaccine as though the thing already existed, maybe in a forgotten freezer somewhere. And our only job was to look hard enough. Um, and I love the fact that you say we're not some kind of Lara Croft in a, in a lab coat, but that's kind of what we think, isn't it? You know, we've got a sort of image of you and then there being this da-da, eureka sort of moment, but there wasn't really anything yeah, like that's, that. That's right. There? So it's, and that's what, so Sarah's been working on. Sarah and Adrian, another colleague at the Jenner, have been working on developing this platform for twenty years. So that's been incremental progress, improvements every year. Every time they make a new vaccine, they learn from the previous one and improve it stepwise. We've been learning better and better every time how to make it, how to make more of it, how to 
do every all our processes incremental improvements and that's what mostly science is it's not one big eureka moment it's building on other people's work our own work doing it better next time and then doing it better next time and that's continuing now so all the work that we did for the covid vaccine now feeds into how we will improve for the next vaccines that we're making um and yeah and sarah hates this idea that yeah we just found it it it's some way that you would kind of completely erase all of the 20 years of effort she's done you just go out and there by the bins you can find a covid vaccine it's it's not how it is i mean hundreds of people involved and many years and what was what was the moment that you knew that it, it worked Oh, there were there were a few because there were lots of different measures of worked, yeah? yeah. There are lots of different points at which you test it and see it works. So for me, we had some. It worked in that we could make enough of it and get it into the vials. So there was one day when we had manufactured it, and I had the my team had the the coke cans worth of starting material and so we'd got that so that was a milestone and then we had the the clinical batch and we'd got it into the vials and it was ready to go into the first volunteer so that for us was yeah that's worked we've done our bit that's worked and then when you do the trial you obviously vaccinate some volunteers and then you start taking blood samples from them and so we got the first data, which isn't about if the vaccine is working, but is about whether the vaccine is doing what we expect to be the right thing. So is it making you make mm-hmm. antibodies? And we got that quite early. So you can tell that when we vaccinate the people, they make an antibody against the spike. So that's the first step. That's likely to mean that the vaccine will work. But that was very important for us. And that was published in the summer last year. And then we got the data from the um, phase three trial, which said in the in the real world circumstance, but in a trial scenario, the vaccine was protecting people against hospitalisation with COVID. And that was hugely important. And now more and more, we see the real world data which for me is the one that really matters. And I think for everybody, it's the one that really Mm. matters, that vaccinated people are protected both against the original variants and against Delta from hospitalisation. And that's not in a trial setting. That's in our own real world, real life experience. And that is obviously what, what the aim was all along. But it took us a long time to get there. Thank goodness for the volunteers. Yes. I mean, that's. I mean, they're amazing, aren't they? It is a striking story of people giving up their own time and people being altruistic and people yeah. going out of their way to help other people. And I think that's something that we, we have to remember and we have to build upon in our community from the whole pandemic experience. Yeah? There were loads of reports of people helping their neighbours with shopping or getting you know themselves to our clinic and rolling up their arm and, and getting vaccinated and then letting us take blood samples you know 12 times over the course of a year so that we can monitor their their blood as they progress through a vaccination response and volunteers in the clinic volunteer nurses volunteers in the vaccination centers i don't know i'm sure when you got went to go and get vaccinated loads of those yep. were staffed yeah. by volunteers they were great weren't they rose yeah it was really good the atmosphere is just it was like a party it was a bit yeah. wasn't it <laughs> It was. And we were so excited to be out anyway. Um, But yeah, they made it really a really um, uplifting experience, actually. I found it very emotional. I know I had a little tear when I got my first one. And then my second one, I was very excited. Yeah, but it was it was very it was something I'll never forget that. Mm. Never forget that. It's one of those moments in your life that, that you won't. And I think so many people have said thank you. Um, to you and your team <laughs> so 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 often. Very interestingly, though, um, I, I love this story at the very start. I mean, it, in a way, it's it's 
it's sad in, in a sense, but I, I love the fact that you went on holiday and there you are with your daughter um, and you got talking to somebody and, you know, because obviously all we were talking about was COVID and all we were talking about was the vaccine. She had no idea who you were. Yeah, that's right. No so I was idea in the queue for pizza in a campsite, yeah. a really beautiful campsite in Snowdonia. Um, and I'd just gone away for the weekend, took my tiny little tent um, just to get some a bit of a bit of rest and relaxation. It turned out I couldn't get too much because I had to be on lots of Zoom calls. So I was trying to find a, a, a internet signal with my iPad, sometimes driving along country roads and trying to find an internet signal with my iPad. But it was at the time when... It was true that the vaccine was still in trials and so it was really new as a concept and we were starting to have some press to say, look, we will have a vaccine, we have made this, but it's using a technology that the public haven't heard before. Though we, of course, in the vaccine community have done this many times before and we've made loads of vaccines using this technology and it's been in trials many times before. But as a licensed medicine doesn't exist in the UK, there is a, an Ebola vaccine on the same platform, but no others. And so it was a new thing. And so I think that although it was quite frustrating for me at the time, there is, there's a lot of common sense in being wary of things that are new and that you don't know about. And so there was a lot mm-hmm. um, in the summer last year of, of suggestions that the vaccine is has been too rushed or it is too new and therefore it's not safe and shouldn't be trusted. And yes, the lady in front of me in the pizza queue was speaking to her friend um, and was saying, we don't know what's in this vaccine. We don't know if it can be trusted. And obviously, although I'm on holiday, you, you, you can see I, I like to talk. So I, um, <laughs> I did just say, hey, I'm Kath and you wouldn't know it to look at me. Um, but I am part of the team that have made the Oxford vaccine and I'm really happy to talk to you about what that is. And that probably planted the seed for me that there was appetite or some some way that I could start to write a book about it to tell the story in long form to get as much information out there as possible because we want people to have the good information so that they can make their own decisions from a from a position of understanding rather than a position of having false information. And did the process of getting it made feel long to you or feel short to you? What, the I vaccine think or the book? Yeah, the, the vaccine <laughs> <laughs> and the book maybe. But I think, I mean, I know a lot of, I'm not my friends, but I do know the main thing that people say is that it's been made so quickly and they don't know about this 20-year thing. Yes. So getting it made in, I mean, months. Yeah, yeah. Really? Astonishing. Yeah, it was Did the fastest feel... we've ever done it. So normally we wouldn't go so quickly through the process. And the reasons for that are twofold. Well, they're they're mostly financial and they're also a bit because there's not any need for it. So we're normally making vaccines that we will hopefully need in the future. But the plan is to put them into a stockpile so that they are ready if there is an outbreak. So we're not normally having to make them in response mode. We're normally making them in a preventative mode, get them ready in advance. So obviously the pressure was on us to go faster. And so to prove that we could go faster was quite interesting for us conceptually. We can do it really quickly if we need to. Mm. And the other reason we normally go much more slowly through the whole process is because we don't normally have the funding available to get to the end before we've done some of the stage gates that are necessary along the way. So me making a a batch of the vaccine is very expensive because we have to do it under really strictly regulated conditions. So normally you wouldn't start me making it until we've got some evidence normally from some mouse studies that the vaccine is going to be in any way likely to work. So normally Mm. we'd make a batch in the lab and then we'd do some mouse experiments using the mouse immune system to make sure mice make antibodies against it to prove 
prove it works in any way at all. And then we take that evidence and use that to try and get money in order to get to the next stage, which would be for me to make it. And then we do the phase one trial in just a few hundred people and make sure that that's working okay and that it's not causing any obvious adverse safety situations. And then we try and get the tens of millions of pounds that's needed to do a larger scale phase two trial. And that whole process from initial concept to the end of a phase two trial might normally take six years. But most of that time, you're actually just waiting for funding decisions and trying to assemble the data. And this time, because it was so urgent, Sarah worked all of... January, February, March, trying to get people to realise that if they funded us up front to do all of it, we could go very quickly. So mostly what we cut out this year was the waiting around for people to make decisions about money. Um, And we were able to do all of the things overlapping so that everything happened quickly and there just was no waiting at all. So we could get things done much faster than we would normally be able to do. See, I think that's a brilliant message to get across, isn't it? Mm. You know, it really is to get that, just to put people's mind at ease. Because as we know, sadly, there's an awful lot of misinformation out there. I mean, you know, you're absolutely right in that people have got to make up their own mind. We can understand why some people are feeling a little bit anxious or or worried or whatever. But when you tell it, when we hear it from you um, and we, you know, and read it in the book, it makes it absolutely crystal clear. So... It is frustrating that that um, that sort of uh, misinformation is out there, but I do actually think that's changing a bit. Do you? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think think it's been out of yeah. I mean, we have now much more lived experience of living with these vaccines, so most of Mm -hmm. us know Mm -hmm. people who have been vaccinated and who have not been harmed, and we can see that this time when we see the data with the number of infections that we can see in the country at the moment relative to the number of hospitalisations and deaths, it's completely changed the profile than it did in January. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We had huge amounts of infections in both cases, but now very few people are actually um, being harmed by COVID-19. So we see that they're working, which also helps. Mm. Which is fantastic. And if you think it's probably a hard question to answer, but what if there wasn't a vaccine? I know. What if this hadn't What if happened? you hadn't been ready? I know. Yeah. It doesn't bear thinking about Yeah, I mean, we always said that it was really important that multiple groups of scientists tried multiple ways to make vaccines um, because there was always the chance that ours would not be successful. There was always the chance that the Pfizer, Moderna and BioNTech ones would not be successful because that's another newish technology that people hadn't been used for vaccinations before. So there's a chance of failure in all of them. And so it was really important. And we always tried to stress it at the time that we were not racing against each other when we were not in a competition with other vaccine manufacturers. Mm. Uh, We needed all of those as backups for the others in case some of them failed because, yeah, to think where we would still be now. Well, we'd still be in lockdown now or our death death numbers would be much, much higher without the vaccines to be protecting us. So, yeah, that's that's one that I think we're pleased that we got to this point, but it was never guaranteed. And it isn't mm. guaranteed for the next one. Yeah, we shouldn't be complacent uh, no. that every no. virus that we ever encounter would be so easy to make mm. vaccines against because in the end it turned out to be quite easy to do this because a lot of people have been successful. Yeah, that's true. I actually never thought about that. And there will be another one, won't there? I mean, at some point, um, which is why it's absolutely vital to make sure that there are people like you coming up and also, again, that you're funded properly. That That's what it comes down to. Sadly, it comes down to money, doesn't it? 
It does. And that's a challenge with science, isn't it? Because the challenge of science is you have to fund things that you don't know if they're going to work because they're experiments. And the whole the definition of experiment is you're doing something you don't know the outcome is going to be. Mm. So to try and find ways to convince the government to spend taxpayers money on researching things for which the outcome is not not well known. And if you think about coronaviruses, they were not a particularly well studied part of virology. Nobody thought they were particularly interesting because they just caused very normally very mild symptoms in humans. So nobody had really bothered making a lot of efforts to make effective vaccines against coronavirus. We have some in animals and Sarah had done one previously for MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, but it wasn't top of anybody's list of things we should be putting money into. And that also is the problem in science. In order to fund the right things now, you either have to be able to see into the future, which of course is mm. impossible, or you have to fund a broad range of wide ranging, interesting, but not necessarily focused science in order to make sure we've got a platform of understanding from which you can then move when you need to. Um, and science is expensive. But the, the benefits of funding science are that we then have a, an industry base of really well-trained, technically competent um, and ideas generating people that hopefully normally pays off in the end. And I think there's quite a lot of evidence that suggests if governments fund basic research and development, that actually feeds back into the economy because sufficient ideas go yeah. on to be successful and generate you know, new businesses, new startups and new medicines. And life gets back to normal. Of course it does. And is that you and your research team now set for life? Or is it going to be different? No, No? because we've we've just gone back to (laughs) the way it was. (laughs) No, because we were funded to do the COVID vaccine project and that is now done. So now it's by project rather than by by the scientists. And project cycles are normally like a three-year cycle. So you apply for some money to do a thing for three years and then you report your results from that three years and then you have to go back and get more funding to, to get get more money in to do more research for the next three years and one of my jobs and and so a professor's job in the university is to keep doing those rounds and rounds of applications so we do three a year in order to get enough money overlapped to get everybody paid to continue doing science so there's no fixed long-term funding for anybody in academic research in the UK. There should be absolutely should be you shouldn't right be having to MP, I will take this right to the top no seriously because you shouldn't be having to mess around with all of that you should be getting on with doing what you're brilliant at um, what's what's really interesting is very sadly we never really know the people who are doing the work to make our lives better we, we don't you know generally and that's what's been so good about the fact that both yourself and Sarah and the team that we know about you now um, how has it been though because you don't go into science to you know to, to, for people to know who you are I guess um, has that been strange to, to, to deal with when people recognise you in the street or talk to you I know people have recognised Sarah in the street. She has distinctive red hair and is on the TV more than me. So I'm happily not being recognised in the street. But it is strange because we, at the beginning we had no training to do that. We don't know what we're supposed to say and what we're not supposed to say. We don't. And we are trying to just get on with doing our jobs. But of course, we are also university scientists. So we do teach and we do do quite a lot of that kind of public facing normally to our students. So we're not afraid Mm -hmm. of having an opinion or, or or describing science to people. And there is a bit of a show to lecturing. When you go into that university lecture theatre with 300 undergraduates in front of you and you have to teach them about what is a cell, what is DNA, what is genetics, what is an adenovirus vector vaccine, there is a bit of showmanship about that. So I think, strangely, we were relatively well prepared for being able to do this kind of 
I'll talk to you about something and it'll be okay. Though some scientists Mm -hmm. really don't like it. And I have people in my team who are happy to be put forward um, as suggestions for going to present and others that don't. And that's, of course, the good thing about working in teams. You don't all have to have the same strengths. So if Sarah and I are going to be doing the Sarah and Kath show on the Lorraine Breakfast TV programme, that's fine. No, I would pay lots of money to see (laughs) the Sarah and Kath show. I think that sounds like a blinking fantastic idea. You know, you know, how um, how did you meet Sarah? So through work. So um, she has been working on vaccines that need batches of them made for clinical trials. And her laboratory is in the green building, uh, we call it, because it's a green building just around the corner from my vaccine manufacturing suite. So she's one of my main customers, effectively. And when we started writing the book, I think it would be fair to say that we were just colleagues um, who had been working together on this in this particularly stressful and intense time. But then since the writing of the book is quite an intense thing, we were we were communicating a lot as we were working through the chapters because we interleave the chapters, so we have to make sure everything's joined up there. And then, of course, all of this press that we're doing, we spent a lot of time together speaking to each other. And I think we've become much better friends now due to the writing of the book. Then we, so I don't think we're just colleagues anymore. I think I can count as a friend now. Yeah, for sure. Mm. And of course, you're both mothers. Yes. You're both mothers as well. And you both somehow got to try and, and juggle all of that. And, you know, and as do men, we shouldn't, you know, it's, it's something that always women tend to get asked about. But as do men, they've got to, to juggle being dads. Um, and that must have been hard when it was particularly intense, Cap to make sure that, you know, you, you, you somehow make sure, somehow have to sort of make sure that, you know, you, your daughter's getting enough attention and, and you're not just working all the time, even though you felt you had to? Yeah, it was really complicated, exacerbated by the fact that my husband and I had separated just before lockdown, um, which obviously was, was very difficult for me, though it... I mean, and he's a really good dad. So he was also doing half of the parenting at the time. So I would have some some days of the week when Ellie was with her dad. And that obviously actually freed up a lot of my time. So on those days, Mm. I could work, just work and not have to think about anything else. But then other days she was with me full time. And then I had to do the juggling of yeah, getting her to key worker school or keeping her entertained or homeschooling and trying to make sure that there's food in the fridge and that the laundry's been done and that also and with no other support network because we were all in bubble you can't you can't I can't just call my yeah. mum and dad and say emergency childcare situation so it was very complicated juggling all of that um but we have yeah as I say so I, my ex-husband did his share of it and then the internet I, there's a lot of YouTube videos were watched mm-hmm. a lot of Minecraft was played um <laughs> and you know uh, we'll we'll watch tips on on YouTube and then Ellie and I also would always make sure we had at least like an hour of just zoning out in front of the TV um watching so we like to watch the shows where people do things so we watched the Bake Off or the Sewing Bee or oh, yeah. Glow Up the one with the makeup artist oh yes mm-hmm. Yes, yes, which yes. is fantastic. So we do. We'll do one show where we definitely sit down, squished up together on the sofa, me and Ellie, and watch a show that we can talk about um, to mm. take our mind off the stresses because it was stressful for ten-year-olds as well as for us. Yeah, they had a yeah. really a real upheaval in their lives over the last eighteen months. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. She must be so proud of you, though. 
She's I mean, been I marvelous this see. year. She's been the best <laughs> company this year um, because she's, you know, she's by she's by everything. Um, but and she's been a good sport because not only was I doing the vaccine, obviously once things calmed down with the vaccine, then I started writing the book, and so a lot of my weekends were taken up just sat in front of the computer writing a book. And she was very understanding of that. So yeah, I think she is proud that she's pretty bored of it now. Like, mom, I don't want to talk about vaccines anymore. Boring. <laughs> That's great, good <laughs> But goodness me, when, when you say, you know, when you say, oh, what does your mum do? Um, it's a wee bit like saying my dad's an astronaut. My mom's an astronaut. <laughs> well, I hope yeah. so. I hope so. It's good, yeah. I want her to be able to say, oh, yeah, my mum, she just did that little little thing with the vaccine. Um, this might be a bit of a different one because we normally end each episode by getting guests to tell us their biggest fail, regret and win. So oh, I can't this. imagine Kat's got any fail. Oh, I have loads of fails. <laughs> I mean, if, if you look, I mean, science is mostly failing. So science is mostly you have an idea and you test it and you prove that you're not right at all. So that's how we progress. Yeah, you, you, you fail and then you say, oh, well, that's obviously not right then. So you have to think of another idea and try that one. So we are quite robust to failure scientists because the whole principle of doing science is you get it wrong and then you learn from that mistake and then you go on again. So the number of job jobs I've applied for that I haven't got, grant funding, so projects that I think are really good ideas that I write them down in a, in a proposal and send them in and people send back so it's total rubbish we're not going to give you any money for this over and over and over again science is mostly failure so I'm not not at all afraid of failure that's okay that's how we learn that's yeah. Okay. yeah definitely that's like that's a very good failure like mm. that actually <laughs> and then what were and the other uh, ones uh regret not having had enough fun the only thing you're ever going to regret is that the friend that you look lost contact with or yeah. the or the time where you took yourself too seriously and didn't have enough fun. There were always mm. things when I was perhaps working too hard on a project which was doomed to fail and I should have spent more time enjoying Paris or Brighton or London or one of those <laughs> things. Oh, that's a good one. And and the win. And the win. Well, this yeah. is the win. Yeah, come on. We made a vaccine in record time that, that <laughs> saved more than exactly. 30,000 lives in the UK alone and I'm taking that as my win for the rest of my that life. That is a bloody big win <laughs> I think that's the biggest win anybody has ever ever said and anybody probably ever will Rosie do you yeah. not think so oh fantastic absolutely brilliant Dr Kath Green you are incredible thank you um, for everything that you and I know it's you and the team and we keep stressing it's the team and it is of course it is but everything that you've done it's it's astonishing lives that you've saved and um, people that you have inspired um, there's going to be a whole new generation of scientists um, that you've inspired and it's wonderful thank you so so much for joining us we really appreciate it don't yeah, we Rose thank you so much thank you